Our gracious Father, you just heard us sing those words, I want to follow Jesus. I pray that you would take my feeble words and in the power of your Spirit, transform them into life-changing words that we might follow Jesus the more in his name. Amen. Please sit down. I'm going to read to you from Mark's Gospel, chapter 11 and verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Somebody once rewrote a direct quotation from the New Testament. They said this, where two or three are gathered in my name, there's bound to be trouble. (laughs) Uh, I made mention yesterday of those of us who have been hurt by others. I realize uh, that that accounts for huge numbers of the populations of the Western world. We all know that we are called to let go of past hurts, but many of us equally know there's one thing to use the language, but another thing to actually do it. Jesus said, didn't he, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. Then again, we pray today, I heard you. Forgive us our trespasses, as you would say, as we forgive those who trespass against us. How often we Anglicans have said that kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Back in the day, I think the second time I visited this great cathedral, I preached a message called Releasing the Energy of God's Forgiveness. Some of you were there and will recall that on that day, uh, I was put up to it by the then dean. I did what you call an altar call, and uh, this sanctuary behind me was just packed with people who had forgiveness uh, issues. Uh, Just three or four months ago, I received a letter from one person who was there telling me that they had been set free by the power of God to pick up a phone and call their mother and restore the relationship. Friends, when I'm talking to you about this, I'm not talking to you from on high, although indeed I am today. I'm talking to you having lived the majority of my life in a state of honestly flagrant unforgiveness. For most of the whole of my life, my relationship with my father was non-existence. Folk in our town would say of my dad, the softest part of him was his teeth. (laughs) 
when I was a child, my father was a business person and traveled widely, and so he was the kind of classic absent father. And to be quite honest with you, because of his womanizing, his drinking, and his ill treatment of my mum, I was always sorry when he came home. I recall one day dreading his return from a business trip when he'd gone out to work one Monday morning. My mother thought he'd be coming back in the evening uh, for supper. He didn't show up till Thursday and couldn't remember where he'd been. He never read the Bible then, but he certainly had gotten the message, spare the rod, spoil the child. I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. I got ordained 10 years later, and somewhere between those moments in my life, I married my sweet wife. My relationship with my dad had very little substance, and though we learned to minimally tolerate each other, I was never sure whether he had any affection for me at all. And truth to tell, I had very little for him. I found myself trying not to think about this and avoiding preaching sermons, encouraging others to forgive at those who had hurt them. In God's time, at the age of 72, in a remarkable way, an unbelievable way, uh, my dad became a Christian. Immediately, in the twinkling of an eye, he was changed. The hell raiser became a heaven gazer. He wrote me a letter. I still have it somewhere in the... Uh, junk room in our house, and uh, what his letter did was he pleaded with me for my forgiveness. And all I can say is, I, I didn't know whether I would ever be able to forgive my dad until he asked me, and then I could forgive him. And then we had the last 12 years of his life where he taught the Bible to some of the biggest hitters in the commercial world in the United Kingdom and in Europe. And we kind of caught up on the last childhood. We go to soccer together and question whether the referee's parents were actually married when he was conceived. <laughs> Our reading today is interesting to me. It starts with this really weird deal of the cursing of the fig tree. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, this is, this is so out of character for Jesus. I'm pretty sure that the Society for the Protection of Fig Trees get a nosebleed when they read this. It seems so unreasonable, not least because it wasn't the season for figs. And the next day, we read that they're passing by, and dear old Peter, good old Peter, says, Oh, Master, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. I, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? When God does what God says he will do, we're always surprised. Always surprised. That's not my point, as a matter of fact. My point is based on the little monologue that follows from Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, don't get overexcited. Have faith in God, and you'll be able to move mountains. Personally, I would have settled for withering a few fig trees myself. And turns out there are a few fig trees back home. I wouldn't mind seeing with it. But Jesus tempts us to a bigger vision, to move mountains. And I want to pause here for a moment and just rehearse with you, what did Jesus actually mean when he said this? Did he mean that we would circumvent the normal rules and processes of engineering and just kind of prayerfully wish mountains out of the way? Anyone who could do that would be an amazing hire for any construction company. 
But when you look at the Bible, you see that mountains are very often described symbolically. First up, they're seen as places where you can get close to God. Obviously, if you believe, as many Jews did in the three-decker universe, heaven is up there, we're on earth, and below is Sheol, what we call hell. Obviously, the higher you can get above sea level, the nearer to God you are. But they're also seen as obstacles. It's pretty obvious why that would be. To get past them even takes effort today by, by engineers. You've either got to blow them up, go around them, or tunnel through them, or a combination of all three things. As an aside, I note that our experience of God is often born of these two perspectives wonderfully coming together. Isn't it amazing and mysterious that it's often when we're in the valley facing a mountain in our lives that ironically we feel closest to God? That's not my point either. My point is that I think Jesus in this context was referring to those obstacles that get between us and God. And I'll come back to that. Here's his advice. Have faith in God. There are a lot of preachers I've heard in my life who don't get this sentence. They place the emphasis on the word faith. You look at the Greek text, it's very clear that the grammar of that text really puts the emphasis on the word God. Too many preachers put their emphasis on the word faith, and a lot of folks leave church feeling very guilty. You'll remember that Jesus said, you only need faith the size of a mustard seed, and you can do great stuff. I'm no gardener. I know a mustard seed is one of the tiniest seeds on the planet. Here's the point. The question is not how big is your faith, but how big is your God? Nowhere does the Bible ask us to have faith in faith. No, it's faith in God. In this interesting little book written in the 1950s, uh, J.B. Phillips wrote a book. I think it was called Your God is Too Small. He offers this interesting and timely thought. The trouble with many of us today, writes J.B. Phillips, is that we've not found a God big enough. In varying degrees, we suffer from a limited idea of God. Phillips exposes such inadequate conceptions of God as resident policeman, grand old man, meek and mild, and managing director, and explores ways in which we can truly find God who, as who he is. It's hard to imagine that in the Western church, much has changed since 1952 when he wrote that book. Have faith in God. Second thing is the place of prayer. Jesus is saying here that this kind of mountain-moving faith is expressed through our prayer life. You want to move mountains, you need to pray. This is not a variation on the name it and claim it stuff uh, that many of us have heard about and decided we would avoid. Faithful prayer is not praying for what you want. Faithful prayer is praying for what God wants. Faithful prayer is not praying for a Range Rover or a yacht or a new husband or whatever. No, faithful prayer is praying for what God wants. And that's important. The third thing is, and listen, this is where the health warning comes in. That that prayer, says Jesus, is regulated by forgiveness. When you stand praying, not 
if you stand praying, or possibly when you're praying, not maybe when you're praying, but when you pray, Jesus says, check out your forgiveness reading. Are there people right now in your life who you know you need to go and say something, pick up a phone, whatever? There is a flow here. And it, both in the English and in the Greek, it's pretty clear. This kind of teaching is stacked with conjunctions, joining words. There's a flow here, a flow of thought. Faith in God, faith released by believing prayer, praying for what God wants, and prayer regulated by our willingness to forgive and be forgiven. I hesitate to say this is a formula because, as you know, the first move of, of us when we pray is to throw ourselves on the throne of grace and God's wisdom. Of course, the assumption made in the New Testament that if you're a Christ follower, you know what it means to be forgiven. That's what I was on about on Monday, as some of you will recall, that on the cross, Jesus died that you might be forgiven. And Jesus now calls the forgiven to be forgiving. In 1 Corinthians 15, one of the earliest kind of attempts that any writer of the New Testament had to kind of write a resume of the Christian faith, Paul wrote this, What I received, I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You say to me, I can't forgive that person because they're not sorry. You can't say to me, it's their job to come and seek my forgiveness. You can't even say to me, I'd love to forgive them, but sadly they're dead. Because it's about your heart, not about theirs. You can't say, I don't think I could ever forgive that person because you have no idea what they did to me. To close, just let me show you one thing. In Matthew 5.23, Jesus says, If your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then in Matthew 18.23, he says this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Do you see what's happening here? Watch this. If you have sinned against your brother, you go. If your brother has sinned against you, you still go. Jesus always puts the onus on his followers to make the first move. What a dreadful indictment in my life that it took me the best part of 50 years to work that out with my own dad. You say to me, I don't have the courage, the strength, the grace for this. Let me reassure you, I know you don't have the courage, the strength, and the grace for this. Here's God's word to you. Have faith in Him. What do I do? Pray a prayer for the strength to pick up a phone, knock on a door, write a note, whatever. Because your prayer needs to be regulated by forgiveness. Go do it in the strength of God. As your faith will grow, the energy of God's amazing forgiveness wrought on the hill of Calvary will be released into this world. And there will be reconciliation. Why should you do this? Well, weigh up what it costs Jesus to secure your forgiveness. In the words of William Walsham Howe's Lenten hymn, I sometimes think about the cross 
and shut my eyes and try to see the cruel nails and crown of thorns and Jesus crucified for me. I wonder if right now God in the power of his spirit isn't whispering in your ear and you need to know what you need to know, need to do. You remember there was a t-shirt that was fashionable in the 80s. Just said on the front of it, go do it. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Friends, go do it. Amen.